0: All right, Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 13. Excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 13 through 18. The Word of God says, He said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house which was toward the north, and behold there set women weeping for Temuz. Then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold. At the door of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar were about five and twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they worshipped the sun toward the east. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? for they have filled the land with violence, and have returned to provoke me to anger, and lo they put the branch to their nose, and together, therefore will I also deal in fury, mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity, and though the cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. And let's pray, Lord help us as we Uh, continue in this portion of scripture, uh, finishing a, a sermon we began last week, that you'd help us to see the wickedness of these abominations, that we'd be able to cry aloud against the sins of our culture, and even of Christians in this culture. And Lord, that you would help us to recognize in our own hearts whether these abominations reside and how to cleanse ourselves from them. Lord, You're a holy God, and You desire a holy people. I pray You'd forgive us from the sins which might come between us and Thee, that You would give us clean hearts, creating us a a clean spirit and a clean heart. Restore unto us the joy of Thy salvation, and may we be a holy people in a wicked world as we strive to have a vision from You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So last Sunday we began this sermon, Sinful Visions. And so our theme for the year is vision. We're talking about getting a vision from God. We've talked about many aspects of that. and We'll continue to throughout this year, off and on, as the Lord leads. But what if the vision in our hearts are sinful visions? What if we can't see what God wants us to see because we've allowed the wrong things to reside in our hearts? And of course, this has always been a problem with Christianity. The Bible says that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and he should be number one in our lives. He should sit on the throne of our heart. But what if we have something else on the throne and we have to constantly check ourselves and search ourselves and ask the Lord to search us, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me Uh, so God can reveal unto us so we can. Uh, be constantly cleansing our hearts. And of course, through the process of, of, of the act of salvation, the process of sanctification begins in God trying to clean us up. And we, in salvation, we get victory over uh, the power of sin. And through sanctification, uh, we get victory over sin's hold on us. And so we want to have a clean heart. And Ezekiel, here, the prophet to God's people, God spoke to Ezekiel in in unique ways and asked him to do some interesting things trying to get through to his people who'd become so hardened. And God gave Ezekiel here a vision of what had happened not just in the country itself, but to the religious leaders in the country. And it's one thing when you have wickedness in a country, it's another thing when you have wickedness in the Christians in that country. And then it's another level of wickedness when even the religious leaders are corrupted by the wickedness of a culture. And so the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. And my friends, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the churches in America are corrupt, then America has no hope. And that's why at Curtis Corner Baptist Church, we strive to draw strong lines and we make strong distinctions and we try to paint in bold colors and not, not pale pastels, but bold colors of black and white and red and yellow and blue and green and we want God's Word to be known and seen and understood. And when so many churches are, are uh, giving in to the culture and so many preachers are tickling ears, we want to be a church that still believes in thus saith the Lord. Amen. Now that position is not always popular. It's not always popular when you tell people the truth. Right. But I would rather hear a bad truth than a pretty lie. I want to hear the truth. God's people have always strived to be people of the truth, people of the book. And so we look to to God's word, and sometimes God's word shows us things about mankind that are unpleasant. And here we see a vision where God begins to take Israel on this vision journey, and they go to the temple, which was supposed to be the place of, of God's presence. It was the place of God's special worship. There's no other place like it on earth. And yet the first thing they find when they get to the gate of the temple is an abomination. And in this chapter we see four abominations that were taking place, not only taking place in the country, but that had infected the temple and the religious leaders of the day. And God was showing them the depth of the sinfulness of the nation. And so we already talked about the first two abominations as they came into the the temple. They saw the abomination and an image there of a false god. And we talked about that, Uh, the the goddess, the wife of Baal and the groves. And uh, this speaks of immorality. And uh, this was a fertility god. And the worship of that god was accompanied with great immorality. And so immorality had taken hold, not just in the people of God, but even in the church house. You know, in the book of 1 Corinthians, God rebukes the Corinthian church because they had open uh, open immorality in the church. I mean, just, just terrible things. And they prided themselves on being accepting of it. And God said, why are you being accepting of this? You should point it out as wrong. And they did. And in 2 Corinthians, we see God commending them for dealing with that. Let me just say, folks, we love people where they are, but we don't, condemn their, we don't condone their sin. We love them where they are as we still preach the word and say, look, just like you do with your kids, look, I love you, but, but you have to do right. And we have to do that with our friends and our towns and our culture and say, listen, we do love you where you're at, but we also have to point out the fact that this Activity is unacceptable. It's a sin against God. It's a sin sometimes against your own body and your own family and your own community. And that's not popular, but it's necessary. We live in a day where some churches, they have the wrong idea of grace and they pride themselves on being tolerant of sin. My friend, God is not tolerant of sin. But He did make a way to forgive you of your sin. But think of the price. Sin is so terrible that it took the Son of God dying on the cross of Calvary to forgive us of this sin. These are not sins that are easily just wiped away and they're no big deal. These are sins that cost Jesus Christ everything. And so it's a fine balance the church must take where we love people where they are. But we also point them to a holy God and preach a righteous book. And helping people go from where they are into who God intends them to be. You don't help people by enabling them to stay in what is hurting them. We know this with addiction. Some of you have faced this in your families. Enablers don't help people. They actually hurt them and keep them in a bad place. Churches can do the same thing spiritually. Churches... If they don't have the right doctrine, they can enable sinners to stay in the sin that's destroying them. It's not okay. We have to preach the book. And here the first thing they find is immorality. And this immorality had taken hold not just the house down the street, but in God's house. We talked about that. Then they went a little bit further into the temple in verse 7 and he brought me to the door of the court when I looked a hole in the wall and God began to have them look into the very chambers of the imagery, the deepest and darkest places of the heart, the secret place of the heart. And there were 70 men there of the ancients, and this represented the the people of Israel. And God gave them a a doorway into the the deepest, darkest chambers of their heart, the things they think about, but they would never talk about. And what he found there was all the things that God said were off limits. In verse 10, so I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house portrayed upon the wall Roundabout, So all the things God said were off limits. They were on display in the deepest places of their hearts. They weren't fighting those sins. They had accepted them, made them heroes and goals, and enjoyed them in the privateness of their heart. And here we see the second abomination is rebellion. Rebellion of the heart. The first abomination was immorality. The second abomination was rebellion of the heart. You know, the, the, the 70 men of the ancients, they would look holy on the outside. and They'd worked hard to make the outside of the cup clean, but the inside was dirty, as Jesus said. They had whited the sepulchers, but the inside were full of dead people's bones. And my friend, we have to be careful that as God's people, we want to strive to have a clean heart. And it's almost like the, 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 the filth of this world, just, just, It's easy to get stuck inside of us. It's easy for our sin nature to grasp onto it. And it's easy for our spirit to, to stop fighting those things and to lay down to it and to give in to them. And if you're not careful, everything that God says is off limits, you'll give it a place in your heart. And you might outwardly say, oh, I'm against that, but in your heart, you enjoy it. There's always a dichotomy in every Christian because... When you get saved, you have a new nature added to the old nature. So there is a part of you that loves sin and enjoys sin and wants nothing but to sin. But there's a new nature in you that doesn't want sin and it hates sin and it cannot sin. And Galatians uh, chapter 6 tells us that there's that battle going on in the Christian of which one is going to take supremacy. Will your old nature win and you be a born again Christian who's living in the old ways and the old sins? Or will you allow that new nature to take hold and, and to to say, no, I'm going to live in righteousness and godliness And the way you do that is you get to decide. You get to win. You have the deciding vote about what wins, the spirit or the flesh. So I often tell people, you know, they say, well, my flesh enjoys that. I said, I know, but fight it. Resist it. Don't get to the place where you say you, you lay down and you give into it. Well, this is just who I am. This is just what I enjoy. This was just how I was reared. This is just what I know. No, there's a new part of you and you fight that and you resist it. Resist the devil and he will flee. And what you'll find is if you begin resisting in the power of the Spirit, that greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. Amen. Hallelujah. So we fight against the wickedness of this world so it doesn't corrupt our heart. The heart is bent to wickedness. That's why we have that daily cleansing. You know, getting saved is a one-time act. I was birthed once physically, but I still need to take a shower every day or I start to stink. Take my word for it. And spiritually, you are only born once spiritually, but you need to be cleansed every day so you can walk in fellowship with God. So we keep short accounts with God. I ask God to forgive me every day, not as a as a a sinner, a lost sinner, but as a son. And Father, forgive me. I don't want anything between us. I don't want to be rebellious. Just like my children, your children, they they ought to treat you with respect and kindness. They ought to love you. And by the way, young people, you need to respect your parents. You need to, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother. It's just not about obeying them. It's about respecting them and using kind words and honorable words and giving them a place of esteem. And if you are, are treating your, your parents in a, in a way that doesn't honor the Lord, then that is a sin, my friend. It is a sin against God. And you'll never find happiness that way. You'll never find the right path dishonoring your parents or the, the leadership God's given you in your life. But my kids are always my kids. They were born once. They can't do anything to stop being my kids. But they get to decide whether to be a good child or a bad child. And there are times when my kids have to apologize to me. Dad, I'm sorry. Just like there's times where I apologize to my father. And so we want to keep that relationship right and sweet and close. And so we see the first abomination, immorality. We see the second abomination, rebellion. Then let's get into the third abomination. Verse 13, after each one of these abominations, he would say, I'm going to show you greater abominations. And so verse 13, he says, he said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. Behold, there set women weeping for Tammuz. Weeping. Tammuz was a false god. He was actually a, a Babylonian god. And he would be a comparable to the god uh, Adonis. And uh, the, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, they often just stole each other's gods. And, and the Romans took the Greek gods and just changed the names. And the Greeks took the gods of the Phoenicians and the Babylonians and changed their names. And so a lot of these false gods have similarities. <laughs> but this, and I was actually doing some research, and I was going to tell you a few things about. Adonis, but he's actually, he's got such a wicked incarnation and a wicked beginning that I don't even want to tell you the story. Uh, terrible process, but he was the, the uh, young man who is impossibly beautiful, and uh, he had, a uh, his girlfriend was another Greek god, we're not going to go into the story, but the story goes that he was out hunting one day, he was a great hunter, and a wild boar mauled him, And he died in her arms. And so this Greek goddess blessed him with some of her power. And uh, he was allowed to spend six months on earth and then six months in the underworld. And it was this weird love story between a mortal and a goddess, how they would be able to spend six months together and six months apart. Just a lot of craziness. And they would tie that to nature. And so winter and fall and winter were when Adonis was in the underworld because love had, got, had lost and love was not available uh, to, to these people. But then spring and summer, that's when he was up top and, and on the earth and, and he and his lover could be together. It's a weird story. But we find here that Adonis and uh, Epaphrodite, this, this worship of Tammuz, which Tammuz is the Babylonian version of Adonis. And so it was tied to nature and beauty. And we see that nature and beauty become false gods. Boy, I was doing some research and just uh, some images came up of the old Greek statues. And good night, they didn't know what clothes were back then. Uh, yeah, I mean, every, every statue of these people, and you go over there and it's like, oh, look at this statue and this statue and all the, the statues. I mean, there's people, they worship the human body. The Greeks worshiped the human body. Matter of fact, in the, the, the precursor to the Olympic Games, they would often run naked because they, they didn't want anything to hinder them. And they they had a worship for the human frame. And by the way, that also led to a lot of immorality as they worshipped the human body. Do we not see that today, that some people worship the human body? I think it's important to be healthy. I think it's important to take care of yourself. I work an awful lot on my figure. Uh, Do you think it's easy to be this round? It's not. It takes work. And so underneath all of this, there is a chiseled man. And a young man said one time, uh, he said, I got a six-pack. Well, I said, I got one too. I just decided to put it in the cooler and uh, keep it safe. So I got a nice cooler around here. But uh, uh, some people worship the body. And you see it on magazines and you see it on this and weight loss here and not just weight loss to be healthy, but weight loss to have the right measurements and the, the chiseled muscles and all of these things. And, and people say, oh, you you, know, you have this in Hollywood and, and the, the entertainment industry, this this. Uh, unrealistic view of what beauty is and I often encourage ladies don't get caught up in that that's not reality you don't have someone getting paid hundreds of dollars an hour to fix your hair and put on your makeup and spray tan you and and nutritionists and all of these things and by the way most of those people are terribly unhappy and they will even tell you they don't live like that all the time. It's, a, it's an impossibility. But we have young people growing up and some ladies that, well, that's what beauty is. And they worship the human frame. They have this idea of, of what perfection of beauty is, and they, they worship it. No, we can't get into all that. The, body tells us, the Bible tells us that this body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, First Corinthians chapter 6, and we ought to take care of it. And I'm, I'm for that. But it ought not to be worshipped. Oftentimes, and whether it's a lot of these false gods, the, the worship involved incredible immorality. And there were actually feasts to Adonis and Epaphrodite. And they, were, they would involve these nature feasts around certain times of the year. And it would involve women's, women prostituting their bodies and giving the money that they had earned through prostitution to the goddess Epaphrodite as part of their worship filthiness wickedness people say well there's no big there's no big difference in religions are you kidding me have you ever looked at any other religions christianity stands far above and away better than every other religion that has ever been uh, even thought of on the planet There's nothing even close. Who else presents a holy God? Who else teaches us holiness? But who else teaches a loving God? And a God that loved the world so much that He'd send His only begotten Son to die on the cross for us, that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in our God we find the perfect mixture of holiness and mercy and justice and grace. He's wonderful. You say, preacher, why are you talking about all this? Because these are abominations that we can have in our heart where we can begin to worship human beauty. And put that above all else, let me ask you this. Compare how long it takes you to get ready in the morning to how much time you spend with God every day. If you take 30 minutes to put on your makeup, and I don't know how long that takes, by the way. It could take three hours. It could take two minutes. I have no idea. I don't do it. I just use a little bit of foundation, a little bit of concealer, and uh, maybe some, no, I'm kidding, I don't don't do any of that. But I do have girls, so I know what all of those things are. Uh, But if it takes you 30 minutes to put on your makeup in the morning and you didn't talk to God for three, that's an issue. If it takes you an hour to get ready and you didn't talk to God for five minutes and read a chapter of the Bible or something, you see, in all these practical ways, we, we, we want God to be first, but oftentimes in the practical things of life. He's way last. Way last. And so we don't want to have these abominations. And what's next is not only was this a worship of beauty, but it became a worship of nature. The ritual worship for Tammuz was also attached to the seasons. And so they they began to worship nature and seed time and harvest and spring and summer. And folks, we have seen a great comeback in nature worship in 2019. There are people that absolutely worship nature. And listen, I'm not for dirty water, I'm not for dirty air, I think we ought to take care of our earth as good stewards, but neither do I believe in the mother earth concept. We don't have a mother earth, we have a father God. And our father God created this earth for us to inhabit and to sustain us. And so we don't worship the trees and the sun and the wind and the ocean and the rivers We don't worship the gardens and the soil. We worship the God who created it all. And so, what you find is when you begin to worship nature, that it causes a lot of problems. Hold your place here and look at at Romans chapter 1. I'll just show you a few verses here. So applicable to our our day and age. Look at verse 19. Romans chapter 1, verse 19. If you're there, say amen. Because that which may be known of God is manifest or made known in them, for God hath showed it unto them. So God's talking about even unbelievers. God has given them more than enough information, more than enough reason to believe. So how did he do this? Look at verse 20. How did God show it to him? For the invisible things of him, of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now look at me. God says one of the biggest things I've given you to show you that I'm here is nature itself. I have revealed myself in nature. You say, oh no, preacher, don't you understand that evolution made all this? I don't believe that. By the way, they talk about evolution as if it's one word and everybody's settled. Some years ago, over 100 prominent scientists took out a full page ad in the USA Today and they said, Evolution is not settled science. But they talk to you about how, oh, every, everybody believes this. Everybody knows this. Did you know there's all t- different types of evolution? Did you know that evolutionists themselves don't agree on the process of evolution? Did you know that evolution is a theory and not settled fact? People don't talk like that anymore. But what evolution did is there were godless people that, that had rejected God before Darwin. Matter of fact, I'm doing some research for a sermon series that we've got coming up on, on atheism here when the Lord allows it. By the way, it's fascinating stuff. And there's militant atheism in our world today that's pressing upon us and, and getting much more aggressive. And uh, atheism is not a, a, a philosophy that stands the test at all. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. They have much more faith than you and I. And I'll prove that to you from the scripture and from their own words. Uh, but, But that's for another day. But there were always people that rejected God before Darwin. But Darwin's theory gave people an excuse to disbelieve God. Matter of fact, they talk about this. They were looking for someone like Darwin, for years to give them a reason. Matter of fact, I was listening to a, a, an agnostic scientist. He was talking about how Darwin's theory makes no sense at all. He said, I don't believe Darwin's theory for two reasons. Number one, it makes no sense in theory. And number two, there's no evidence to prove it. Darwin himself said the fossil record would prove or disprove evolution. And they're still looking for the missing link. I mean, and they're so desperate, they'll find a tooth and build a whole human frame out of it and say, we found the missing link. No, you found a tooth. You found a jawbone. You found a piece of something that you're extrapolating and interpolating into what you want it to be. But see, whenever you look at creation and and scientists now and the atheistic world and the godless world says, no, this is all here by accident. Then they've just removed much of the evidence God left to prove He exists. Folks, how can a monkey become a person? Oh, but it's not just that. How can a frog become a monkey? Oh, but it's not just that. How can a fly become a frog? Oh, it's not just that. How can an amoeba become a fly? Oh, it's not just that. How can a group of cells become a living cell? Oh, a multi-celled organism. Oh, it's not just that. How do a group of chemicals become life? Oh, it's not just that. Where did the chemicals come from? Well, cosmic dust blew up. Where'd the cosmic dust come from? It just always was. It doesn't stand the test. You say, I, I know I'm You say, preacher, That's not exactly how it works. I know. I'm being, I'm, I'm narrowing this down for time. Amen. But it makes no sense. You take something even just like the human eye and you look at how the human eye is constructed. There's something called irreducible complexity. That, that the human eye is so complex, there is no way for it to jump from the lowest version of an eye on the planet to the human eye. There is no possible way because if you take away one part of the human eye, it ceases to function. It's so complex that it's irreducible. And there's all kinds of other things to bring into consideration, but I say all this to say that we live in a world that worships nature as a cosmic accident that happens over billions and billions of years. And they remove God from the equation. When you walk outside these doors today and you feel the wind on your face and you look at the trees and you look in the sky and you see the the squirrels running across the road dodging traffic, amen, and all of these things and from the mosquito gnawing on your neck tonight as you're walking outside to the fly buzzing around your head to the dog running at your feet to the children and your grandchildren and you tell me it's all here by accident for no reason. No, sir. No, sir. You see, a nature worshiper looks at nature and they worship the tree. They worship the creation, but they forget the creator. And creation was meant to point us to the creator. Matter of fact, the great scientists of old, they studied nature to learn about God. Nowadays, scientists study nature to try to disprove God. And it's false. It's faulty. And the Bible says they're without excuse. Look at verse 21. Because that, Romans 1, 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain or empty in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So there came a time when people knew God. They knew who God was, but they couldn't accept Him as he revealed himself. So they came up with other images, other ideas of how things could be, other gods that would fit their way of living. Verse 22, And professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image of God. Made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So they, they knew God. They didn't want to recognize Him as God, so they came up with their own gods. It could be a man, it could be an animal. But they needed another God that would give them permission to live how they wanted to live. And make no mistake about it, that's what humanism is all about. I become God. I decide what's right and wrong. Don't judge me. Nobody can judge me because I'm my own God. No, there is a God, and He's going to judge all of us. Verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. The absence of God always leads to the absence of morals. Always. Verse 25, Who changed the truth of God into a lie? Watch this and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever amen and i'm telling you folks there is a new brand of nature worship going on in the world today nature worship they worship the creature nature more than the god who created it and it ought not so to be we we think about global warming Global warming is not a political issue, it's a moral issue. And by the way, that's what they tell you. This is a moral issue. Folks, the world's going to stand as long as God wants it to stand. As a matter of fact, if you're worried about global warming, look at 2 Peter chapter 3. You talk about global warming, when God's done with the earth, the earth will go up in flames at an elemental level. The, word uses, the, the Bible uses the word dissolve. The world will dissolve, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. This earth is going to stand here as long as God wants it to. There's going to be humans here on earth as long as God wants there to be. And the end times are going to go exactly like God told us they were going to go. And so we don't have to be worked up into a a lather about, we got 12 years, folks, 12 years, and we won't be able to live. Well, the only way that's true is if in 12 years God is doing His work. One one of the, the, the people running for a democratic primary, they said, listen, it's too late. We need to start moving people to higher ground. And I'm thinking, goodness, working up all the, the fear and the terror. We got to get rid of, uh, of cars and planes as they drive, as they fly in their private jets, telling people to get rid of all their stuff and driving around in their big SUVs and all of this stuff. And it's like, well, we got to get rid of everything. Matter of fact, cows are having too much gas. And, and when you think about this, it doesn't surprise me because when you remove God from the equation, What else do you have but fear and anxiety and worry and trying to figure everything out for yourself? You can look at the world, folks, and be like, everything's okay because God's in control. What's going to happen in North Korea? What's going to happen in Iran? What's going to happen in Israel? What's going to happen? God's in control. I can sleep well tonight. And no matter what happens tomorrow, I'm going to wake up and trust God then. People said, well, what if you find out there's aliens? What if an alien, I had someone tell me one time, what if an alien landed on the front lawn of the church? What would you do then? I said I'd walk out, hand him a track, and invite him to church. <laughs> and the guy's like, no, you wouldn't. That's exactly what I'd do. Yeah, but, but there's all this, what if, what if, what if? We don't need to what if, we know what God said. And so that this third abomination begins to place the false gods of beauty and nature in the heart of man. And even animal worship. I was driving in Connecticut last year and I saw a billboard from PETA, the, the, the organization about, about protecting animals. They literally, and this, this is the billboard, they had a picture of a mom holding a baby and they had a picture of a mama sheep with a baby lamb and the caption read, They are the same. They are the same. And I thought, oh God, is this what we're coming to? This is why you can destroy a baby in the womb and there's no penalty. And if you go out and hurt your dog, you'll be fine or go to jail. Because there is this trying to build this false equality between nature and mankind. No, the Bible says mankind were made with a special creation. Matter of fact, God gave Adam dominion over the herbs and the animals and the world. And so we, we have to have a biblical mindset. And boy, I hope this is helping you. And so we see the abomination, the first abomination, the, the wife of Baal and the worship of the groves and immorality. We see the second abomination. All the things that God said were sinful and off limits were found being worshipped in the heart and here we see rebellion of the heart. And then we see the third abomination, this uh, women weeping for Tammuz, and instead of weeping for the sins of their nation, they were weeping for a false god and a fake story. And then we see, lastly, the fourth abomination. Look at verse 15. Then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations And these, So notice every time he says greater abominations. You think that's bad? Look at this. You think that's bad? Look at this. You think that's bad, look at this. And we find here, they went to the inner court of the Lord's house. This is a special place. Not everybody could go into the inner court. This was the place for the priests and the servants of God. But they said, Behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they worshipped the sun toward the east this is probably the babylonian god shimash he was the god of the sun and again every every culture with false gods has some version of this the egyptians worshiped the sun other people worshiped the sun this was sun worship the sun was worshiped for its power and its strength and its provision They understood that plants don't grow without the sun and we would die without the warmth of the sun. So they worship the sun as the provider and the giver of all good things. Oh, wait a minute. We know that that's what the Bible says about God. God's the giver of all good things. Look at James chapter 1. James chapter one, verse 17, The Word of God says, "Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above." Oh, you mean the son, no, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of its turning. Of his own will he beget us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first-fruits of His creatures. No, we worship God as the provider of all good things. What is this abomination? The fourth abomination was sufficiency without God. We don't need the God of heaven. We get our substance and sustenance. We get what we need from somewhere else than God. And this perhaps is the most lethal abomination of them all. The godless life. And here they were worshiping the sun. Nowadays, people don't worship the sun, they have a worship of themselves. But it's the same sin, sufficiency without God. We don't need God. Have you ever heard someone say, Christianity is a crutch? I don't need God. I don't need a savior. I don't need what are they saying? I am sufficient. Everything I've ever gotten, I've gotten from my own hard work and my own own intelligence. And they're blinded with the abomination of pride and self-sufficiency. and They don't recognize that even their very breath, the beating of their heart, is from a God who's holding them one heartbeat from hell, hoping they'll get saved. Waiting for them giving them day after day, chance after chance, moment after moment, week after week, year after year. For God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the very God that's keeping them from a godless eternity, they push out their chest and they shout to the heavens, I am God. Mm -hmm. This is Satanism in its most pure form. Satanism at its purest is not a devil costume. It's not some rocker with a pentagram drugged up and biting the head off some rat. It's not a coven of witches making spells around a bubbling pot. Satanism in its purest form is saying what Lucifer said while still in heaven when he was first corrupted, I will Be like the Most High. I want to be God. Isn't it interesting that when God put the garden in the Garden of Eden, He put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said it was off limits. When Satan came to Eve, he said, in the day that you shall eat of it, ye shall be like gods. See, that promise, that desire to break the chains of the God of heaven and become your own judge and jury has always been a temptation for the wickedness of man. And whether it's in some Amazonian jungle with people wearing loincloths chanting around a fire, or it's in a university with people that have had way too much education and they're dumber than when they started, it's all the same. I am my own God. And there's a God in heaven that says, That's an abomination. We see atheism is a form of this. And make no mistake, atheism is a religion. Humanism is a religion. Humans are first. We're all getting better. We're we're getting into perfection. One of these days we're going to be able to create utopia as mankind is getting better and better. No. Mankind's getting worse and worse as they turn away from God. We see hedonism, just the Pursuit of pleasure, if it feels good, do it with no consequences. They're all abominations. Godless forms of government, communism, socialism, fascism, rule as if there is no God to answer to. They are the gods. They decide what's best. All of the isms in the world, most of them, are replacement for God. And we find this abomination. Here's the question for Curtis Corner Baptist Church. Here's the question for individual Christians. We must make sure that even though these abominations are rampant in our culture, that they're not rampant in our church and they're not rampant in our own hearts. Let me show you a verse that helped me out an awful lot. Oh, let me show you one other thing here and then we'll be done. I'll show you one other verse. Look at verse 17. What's the result of all this? Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? Now remember, abomination is the strongest word for hatred in the Bible. It's a hatred mixed with a disgust. Uh, Look what he says. For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger, and lo, they put the branch to their nose. That's a common colloquialism for back then. It was a way to show pride and resistance. And God says, therefore, will I will also deal with them in my fury. Now watch this. We see abominations. The result of that was violence. When you have an absence of God, there is an absence of morality because everybody begins doing that which was right in their own eyes. And your neighbor your coworker may not have the same morals you do. So everybody's just deciding what's right and wrong. You know, in some cultures, they love their neighbors. In other cultures, they eat their neighbors. If there is no God, there's no difference. If there is no God, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell, then there is no difference between Hitler and Mother Teresa when they die. It all means nothing. And it's the law of the jungle. Survival of the fittest. When you take atheism and agnosticism and all of these godless concepts and you take it down to the end conclusion, it's not a world that anybody wants to live in. And what what atheism today is trying to do is they're trying to steal the idea of morality from God and saying we can have morality with the absence of God, but they're dishonest about where all of that leads. Joseph Stalin was in seminary studying theology. He rejected God, became a leader, killed 15 million of his own people ended up being responsible. Russia was responsible for the deaths of over 60 million people. Makes the Holocaust look like nothing. And he was a man who rejected God and began living a pragmatic life. If there is no God, there is no judge, there are no morals, we decide what's right. It's not a world you want to live in. So when we hold to God and we hold to the morals God sets, we're actually protecting our families and our culture from the fruits of godlessness, which is violence and chaos. Big stakes, my friend. Big stakes. Let me show you a verse that I love and we'll be done. Psalm 119. This verse helped me. You say, Preacher, how do I get these abominations out of my heart? If I do find them, how do I I deal with it? And listen, if you got saved later in life or you've been backslidden in the world, you're going to find these things in your heart. So what do we do? Psalm 119, verse 9. Psalm 119. Verse 9, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? With my whole heart have I sought thee. O oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hidden mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord. Teach me thy statutes. With my lips have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Here's the beautiful truth. The word of God has a cleansing power on the heart and the mind. You say, Preacher, I read the Bible and I'm not getting much out of it. Keep reading Keep studying, keep listening. Because the Word of God has a cleansing power on your heart and your mind. Ephesians talks about the washing of the water of the Word. And the way you get these abominations is just much like Josiah. We read about Josiah last week. They didn't even know all of their sins until they found a copy of God's Word. And they read it and they said, oh my our land is filled with abominations, and they used God's word to cleanse the nation. And you and I can use God's word to cleanse our hearts and our minds. Saturate your mind with the scripture, and the abominations will flee. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the truth of your word. We've discussed some heavy topics the last couple of weeks, but things that are so relevant for our culture and our place uh, In 2019, I pray that you'd help us to acknowledge these things, to make sure these abominations don't take root in our church or in our heart, and that we would seek to, in a world that is starting to be defined by these things, that we would hold the line and speak the truth in love and lovingly teach people right and wrong from your word. Lovingly teach people that you're there and you care. And you'll save anybody that will ask. But, Lord, sin must be punished. Ultimately, sin must be punished. It will either be punished on the cross through Christ or it will be punished in hell by them, through them, to them. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to cleanse ourselves and then preach the gospel to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If the Lord spoke to your heart, I want you to take a moment What did God speak to you about? Are there any of these things that have started to take root in your own heart? Are there any of these things that you see in culture that you're particularly concerned about? Maybe you see some of these things in your family or your extended family taking hold. Maybe you're fighting some of these things right now. I don't know what the issues are, but I know that Jesus is the answer. The word of God's the answer. Of course, if you're here this morning, not sure you're saved. We'd love to take a Bible and show you how you can know for sure you're going to heaven. Let's strive to be a holy people. And hey, listen, when you sin, when you mess up, ask forgiveness, make it right with God right away, brush yourself off and ask God for strength to live for Him today. In a a crowd this size, somebody blew it this week. Somebody messed up this week. And I don't know what those sins would be, but listen, make it right. Keep short accounts with God. Stay close to God. Stay in church. Fill your heart with the Scripture. Get counsel. Don't let those things take hold because the end is destruction. Let's stand. As the piano plays, the altar's open.